We must scatter the fleet. We have no recourse but to surrender. Are we really talking about disbanding something that we've worked so hard to create? We can't just give in! We joined an alliance, not a suicide pact. We've only now managed to gather our forces. Gather our forces? General Draven's already blown up an Imperial base. A decision needed to be made. If it's war you want, you'll fight alone. If that's how it's going, why have an alliance at all? If she's telling the truth, we need to act now. Counselors, please. It is simple. The Empire has the means of mass destruction. The Rebellion does not. A Death Star? This is nonsense. What reason would my father have to lie? What benefit would it bring him? To lure our forces into a final battle to destroy us once and for all. Risk everything. Based on what? The testimony of a criminal. The dying words of her father, an Imperial scientist. Oh, don't forget the Imperial pilot. My father gave his life so that we may have a chance to defeat this. So you've told us. If the Empire has this kind of power, what chance do we have? What chance do we have? The question is what choice? Run, hide, plead for mercy, scatter your forces. You give way to an enemy this evil with this much power, and you condemn the galaxy to an eternity of submission. The time to fight is now. Yes. Every moment you waste is another step closer to the ashes of Jeddah. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode called Uprising, Rebellions in Film. This is something that I've been thinking about for a while. I've been talking with Patrick about. I've also been talking with our friend Robin Bunce, who is here, Dr. Robin Bunce, who is here um, as a guest tonight. Our friend and co-partner with Shoulder Ryan, Dan Ferlito. He is not here. He might join us a little bit later. But this episode which might end up being two depending on how long this goes really began with me reading one thing on social media and it was this list and the first thing off on the list said take down your rebel your star wars rebel insignia or whatever that thing is you would never you would not have fought for them and i was when i read that i was like whoa and then i started thinking about how many films that we've seen and love that you know, you have this whole resistance happening, whether it's the original Star Wars, the new Star Wars, the Hunger Games, oh, even if it's not huge, or, or, or even before that, my first immersion into resistance or rebellions in film or media was Les Miserables, which was uh, written by Victor Hugo, adapted into a play, uh, a musical. It premiered in like 1988, and it's been going all around the world ever since then. And I remember, I mean, I... I still hear the music. I listen to the music and I never really understood what I was listening to even to this day. And it was making me reading that quote or reading that post on social media about you really wouldn't fight for the rebels in star Wars made me think, well, what is happening in the world? And we've been immersed in this culture of resistance and rebellion all of our lives. What we're experiencing now socially in terms of civil the civil rights movement shouldn't be anything new to us at all but in fact it is i felt like it was time to investigate rebellions verbally and talk about it and find out what draws us to that what why are we drawn to people like luke skywalker why are we drawn to paul atreides in dune what about those stories speak to us so much that you know we have that film coming out. Why do uprisings speak to us so intimately? At the end of the day, you're another day older. And that's all you can say for the life of the poor. It's a struggle, it's a war, and there's nothing that anyone's giving. One more day standing about.
I started with my first experience with uprisings. Of course, I did grow up, you know, in the American school system, homeschooled, but, you know, I was taught history and um, the emancipation of slavery and all, you know, all of the, the, the major points, you know, the, the Revolutionary War, all the major wars in history that have affected Americans or black people. Um, so I, I have knowledge of it, but I don't think it's ever touched me the way that it's touching me now, where the voice of the voice of this generation right now is being defined by uh, the treatment of black people uh, and the people who represent that. Um, and it's not just black people. It's also, you have other people, uh, other groups getting into it too, which is our native Americans in terms of visibility and people all over the world stepping into this uh, global uprising to say, Hey, we need to be, we need to treat people better. We need to get rid of this systemic issue. Um, but I, I, uh, I'll, I'll end it with these last few comments and I'll pass it off to whoever wants to go next. But I, again, I, I remember being in the auditorium theater in Chicago. It was probably 1994, 1995 and watching Les Miserables and hearing those songs and watching the barricade form up and feeling the sense of fighting for the people, but not really truly understanding what that is. And, so I really want to investigate why uprisings speak to us. From Philadelphia, we expect a declaration of independence. Eight of the 13 colonies have levied money in support of a continental army. I ask that South Carolina be the ninth. Massachusetts and Virginia may be at war, but South Carolina is not. This is not a war for the independence of one or two colonies but for the independence of one nation. I think this is going to be a fantastic topic for an episode, and I'll make mine quick. I have one uh, comment and one question, and then I'll kick it off to Dr. Bunce. Um, my comment is that, Jamie, I don't know if you know this, but I, I starred in Les Miserables in high school, and I have a picture right here. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> of me as Marius. You were, um, I love that show. You were Marius? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> So I want to slip in there as a little bit of, you know, I have some cred when I'm talking about uprisings. I've, you know, been involved with one on stage uh, <laughs> <laughs> as the love interest. No, it's a great show. Um, that's my comment. My question is, uh, what was the context of that comment about the rebels? Like, what, what was, was it saying that, like, you're too, was it saying that, like, the people who are posting insignia from, like, the Rebel Alliance don't understand what the fight was about? or that they're too like, wimpy to actually stand up for something? No. Like, what, was, what was the context of that? The context of it was, there was, it was whatever the post was, and it was this list of, you know, put that rebel flag away, put down your bow and arrow, or you wouldn't have fought for Katniss Everdeen, you wouldn't have been a Fremen, you wouldn't, you know, like all of these things that you've, you've had, um, whether it's posters or stickers or buttons or patches on that, make us who we are this this uh this entertainment that we love when in reality we we wouldn't have fought for those people um because a lot of why those not? people why not though? no but i think the the what you have to understand is oftentimes the people who a lot of the people who are coming out being critical of the civil rights movement happening right happening right now but loved um the rebels in star wars and they loved okay. what luke was doing so it's this dichotomy like will you you say you want, you say, you, you know, you would have fought for the rebels. You say you would have, you know, whatever, um, whatever film that you love that includes uprisings, 
but the reality is we're in one and this is the right side and you're 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 nowhere to be seen so you are in fact counterfeit um you so do not you, believe those you are, are, are people who are espousing values that are not aligned with yes uprisings and film okay I, I got i just didn't get the context of that was um yeah hopefully we get to talk quite a lot about star wars and, and uprisings in this yep. episode because that to me that's a foundational part of the way that i understand uprisings to happen but any, anyway robin what, what do you think my initial thought is that i'm enormously sympathetic to the idea that the vast majority of people would not really join the rebellion um it seems to me that historically um dictatorial and despotic regimes rely on the complicity of the vast majority of people um and it also seems to me that once you have kind of state power once you have um a, a regime to legitimize you as a dictator um you can kind of rely on a, a lot of people simply to say well this is the law or this is the way it is or the, the you know we're doing what is um, required of us by this regime um so it does strike me as being um you know, intuitively, it does strike me as intuitively correct to say that the vast majority of people would not resist. And I am always quite surprised at how many of my friends on social media simply don't speak up. Um, and I'm also, um, so I'm also amazed at how many people are bought off by kind of rhetorical tropes, which indicate that rebellion is either pointless or pointless or useless. So there's an awful lot of um, people on social media saying, "Well, there, there, there's no point in rebelling because you won't achieve anything," or "There's or this isn't real rebellion. This is just virtue signalling, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. So there seem to be lots and lots of rhetorical techniques that um, people who support the status quo can use, um, which can di can diffuse or or divert um, people who would want to rebel. In terms of why we want to rebel, um, when Jamie was speaking, the, the, the philosopher who came to my mind was John Locke, weirdly, um, in the sense that John Locke argues that even before we create a government together, we have a right and a duty to prosecute justice. Um, so this is, some, this is a right that we don't get from the state, we don't get it from the government, this is a right that we, we're kind of born with. Um, and even without a state or even without a government, we, we have this right and this duty to go after justice. Um, and that strikes me that, you know, justice is the thing that's at the heart of every rebellion. And where there are occasions where governments and states and regimes are unjust, that does strike me as, as being this kind of... Um, um, instinctive, um, you know, this instinctive and kind of natural desire to want to overturn that. Um, so, yeah, so those are kind of my somewhat incoherent thoughts at this stage in the game. It's fascinating, though, to think about, as you said, maybe the vast majority of people wouldn't involve themselves in an uprising. So then why does up, do uprisings speak to the vast majority of people? That's incongruous to me not to say that of course throughout history revolutions were happening wars were happening so much was happening and not everyone was involved in that for sure there was a lot of people going to work and doing what they had to do and coming home and watching the news or hearing about it depending on when in history it was happening but and i think for me as someone who has lived a life as a whistleblower it's a natural thing for me to just think well you just do what's right right you just go do what's right. This is what's right. But it's also this idea that the truth costs you. Um, knowing, being involved in the truth and hearing its call also costs you. And, and it could cost you your job. 
it could cost you a lot. And that scares people into not participating. I mean, the, the, the rebellionists in movies almost never have like comfortable home lives where, you know, they have like a regular salary and they have, a, you know, a nine to five job and they're comfortable and everything's good. You're right. It, 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 to, to rebel is to attempt to break something, right? And so to, to do that, like you have to basically give up everything you have and, and take a wild chance. And I feel like um, there is an element to this of the escapist allure of film. I think if, if we're talking specifically about movies, like when we go to movies and we watch, you know, Dwayne Johnson jump across a skyscraper, you know, we watch that knowing that if we could, we would love to do that, but we, we can't. And, and neither can he for that matter, right? When we watch a rebellion in film, a lot of the time, I think, we think to ourselves, that's the right thing. I can see that. I can empathize with it. That's what I wish I could do. That's my aspiration. But circumstance and history and my life are meaning that I can't, cannot do that in this moment because it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult. That being said, though, like, I, I, I do sort of think that to, I, I think that in general, it's, it's a good thing if you are at least compelled by an uprising in film in the first place. I think that it means mm. that you are getting it. And that that's like and that that's a healthy thing, and that if everybody in society were to simultaneously drop everything they had and go burn down institutions—not literally, but I mean like try to just disrupt systems entirely—then it would be wildly unstable amounts of change in the first place. So like everybody also can't uprise at the same time, you know. Um, otherwise, it wouldn't be an uprising; that would just be society. So I, I guess that's kind of a weird way to say it, but I I feel like I don't want to. You know, there are fights to fight and there are fights that we can fight and each of us is different and comes at this from different angles in life. There are fights that I fight day in and day out as part of the work that I do, right? I don't know if that would be considered an uprising, but it is trying to destabilize systems that are put in place to disempower and disenfranchise people and starve them, right? So like in a small way, that's kind of an uprising because I'm fighting against a system, but I'm not personally in a place where i'm going to leave my family and leave my job and go mm. live homelessly and you know fight you know on top of, of rooftops and things like that but when i watch movies and i feel drawn to them and i feel like there's i'm watching real heroes do things i feel really inspired by that and then in my small personal way i take those those lessons with me and apply them to my own life and do those little miniature uprisings you know every day that um might not be enough to warrant being called a resistance fighter or something but are, are at least my little ways of trying to emulate them. Well, let's talk about that for you and for Dan has just joined us, everyone. Um, welcome, Dan. Hey. Thanks, for, thanks for showing up. Dan. Let's, let's talk about those moments in film or books or media that touched you and why it did. Um, I, I don't know what those are. I mean, I, I talked to you guys about my first experience, really understanding the movement of like uh, Les, Les Mis, which is, you know, the musical and really feeling like, while the people were powerful, like these people overturned the system. I mean, it was also, that didn't end very well either. I mean, it it, sort, it, it, it created some change, but it didn't end well. Um, uprisings don't always go very well. Sometimes they go horribly wrong. Um, and it's only in the aftermath and that there's, you know, the pause and then the governments or the people involved are like, oh shit, what, what just happened? They might've lost it, but then everything starts changing. So I'm curious for, for you guys, what spoke to you in terms of, I mean, it could be Luke Skywalker, it could be Paul Atreides, it could be Katniss Everdeen, it could be, in some ways, you know, the story of Christ is the story of an uprising, really. Mm. Um, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot 
uh, in terms of the movement that he created, whether he was real or not, he created a movement um, for people. And uh, that movement also was also the sort of the basis of the, the beginning of America, where people wanted to go and they wanted to worship the way that they wanted to. And they had this conviction. So they came over here. I mean, that's, of course, a very watered down version of what was what was happening. But he was a figure that that pushed for change and changing the system. Um, and he's a figure that I think about a lot. I, um, I process a lot. But I am curious what in your lives affects you that way. I'm really pleased that um, Star Wars has already been mentioned. Um, because one of the things I love about Star Wars Episode Four is the complexity of the different motivations. Because for every Luke Skywalker, there's an Uncle Owen, um, and you know, and for every Obi Wan, there's Han Solo. Um, and I and I love the kind of contrast between Obi Wan, who's the kind of downfall idealist, and Uncle Owen, who's got the moisture vapor, the moisture farm, and you know, and he's got a stake in that society, and you know, he's eking out a living, and he's got some money probably in the bank or whatever, and therefore, you know, he's not going to go and join Obi Wan on a downfall idealistic crusade. Um, yeah, and I love and I love Han Solo. I love you know, he's just in it for the money. He's just looking after himself. So I think in episode four, you see all of these different motivations. And of course, although you want to be Luke Skywalker, you want to be, you know, I'm an old man now, I want to be Obi-Wan. Um, you know, there's part of me that recognizes that to at least to some extent, I'm Uncle Owen, you know, at least some of the time. So yeah, so that's what I like about episode four. I love the complexity of all of the different motivations and all of the different takes on rebellion and all of the, all of the reasons there are for doing it and all of the reasons there are for not rebelling. I'll jump in for one moment because something that Robin, I want to circle back around to what you just said, but I, I don't want to forget. I, I've been listening to the new the new Run the Jewels album like nonstop since it came out. I think it's just an extraordinary extraordinary album, and it has some of the most like searing it's lyrics great. like I have ever heard in my life. Killer Mike is so good, and Jamie, what you said about Jesus, um, there's a, there's a line in the best easily the best track in the album called Walking in the Snow, um, and I'm going to read it just quickly because it, it ends with it, what you're saying. So he says, um, so Killer Mike says, I'm reading Chomsky, I'm reading Bukowski, I'm laying low for a week. I said something on behalf of my people and I popped up in WikiLeaks. Thank God that I'm covered, the devil can smother, then you know the evil don't sleep. Dick Gregory told me a couple of secrets before we lay down in his grave. All of us serve the same masters, all of us nothing but slaves. Never forgetting the story of Jesus, the hero was killed by the state. Just got done walking in the snow, goddamn that motherfucker cold. Just got done walking in the snow, goddamn that motherfucker cold. Just got done walking in the snow. Goddamn it, oh, man. It's a really, really good song. And and, and you're right, Perfect. that is like, in some ways, mm. I mean, obviously there's corollaries with Star Wars and, and the story of Jesus in the Bible too, right? But but, but that, that was that was a, a profound uprising, even though it didn't become a movement, it was relatively small during Jesus' lifetime. The, the reverberations of that, you know, obviously are enormously important, historically speaking. And a lot of the time, like Jamie, you were saying earlier, we don't see the after effects of revolutions in film. We don't see what happened after you know, everybody's heads were cut off during the French Revolution, right? Like, we, we don't see what happens when they clean the bodies up. We don't see what happens when the systems are put in place and often end up oppressing people all over again. Like, like we don't see what happens after uprisings because that's not the sort of Cinderella story, right? That's not, it's never as, as simple as we kind of want it to be. Um, and I think uh, just like that, you know, in the story of Jesus' life, like, you know, you had this incredible sort of, you know, triumphant, dramatic thing you know, not, not even talking about like metaphysics or biblical things, but you're talking about like historically speaking, you know, like the, this guy speaking out about, you know, freedom and about loving each other and about blah, blah, blah. 
and then being murdered for it very publicly and then inspiring a movement of people that took over the world gradually, right? Um, the story of what happens after his death is nowhere near as compelling as what happened leading up to it. And I think that that's, that's a lot of the time why in Star Wars, like we don't see what happens when the you know empire is destroyed like we don't we don't get to spend time in that because it's not that's not what the story really hinges on and it's interesting where rebellions in film usually are portrayed it's usually like the lead up to the rebellion the rebellion itself and then it's like we pretend that it's over but it's actually not thanks for letting me join late it was it's been an epic few days i'm my brain might be a little slow but <laughs> I, I don't know what you guys have covered in terms of film but you were jamie you were asking earlier about films about uprisings and stuff and um, I have two things that popped to mind right away. Uh, and I don't know if you guys brought up Blade Runner yet, considering the, <laughs> the we, we haven't talked about many movies yet. We've just been kind of starting. Okay. Yeah. Well, in terms of movies, uh, and, I'll, and I'll give some real life examples too, but things that are fresh in my mind is I was sort of thinking of the replicants rebelling and, you know, killing all the people on the... Um, on the shuttle and then, and then coming, you know, and then escaping their off world colony and coming to earth, you know, that's a small rebellion or a small uprising, but Blade Runner, both films have those themes, right? In 2049, they actually show you, you know, a, a quite the group of replicants that are sort of marching in and ready to ready to fight. And we see some of this in, um, in blackout, uh, the, um, which if you haven't seen the shorts, they're well worth seeing, but you see kind of a little bit of, of rebelling from the uh, replicants and them sabotaging things and then them that making human replicant relations worse, um, which I think Patrick brought up a good point. Uh, uh, just because I mentioned, uh, I watched it recently, I was going to mention V for Vendetta just because that's an interesting mix of things because it's, I don't, I'm not familiar with the source comic. I don't know if Patrick or anybody else is. It looks yeah, cool. Yeah, I want to read Miller. it. Right. Um, oh, Frank Miller. Oh, no, no, it's not Frank Miller. It's Alan Moore. Sorry, I don't know why. Right, right, right. Okay. They're, they're two uh, brilliant, brilliant comic artists. Right. It's Alan Moore, yeah. Right. And, um, you know, they bring in, and uh, Robin can speak on this since it's his country, but um, they bring in the Guy Fawkes uh, incident, which is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, um, Robin, uh, but that that's all true as far as I know. There was an attempted bombing of Parliament, et cetera, et cetera, in uh, was the early 1500s or early 1600s? 1605. Thank you, 1605. But the point being that I liked the transition there with sort of the Guy Fox mask that the main character that V wears and then the crowd wearing it at the end. And, you know, of course, I think there's a sort of oversaturation of ideas in that film where if you are more into uh, subtle things, it's not really the film for you. You know, it's, it's very overt. I mean, the authoritarian leader is like angry all the time and screaming you know um and there's some very overt um sort of messaging and colors and uniforms and all that that remind us of obvious times in the 20th century in europe um but what's interesting is the comparison of science fiction stories to real life and i think what patrick said is is very um apt about how we usually don't see the aftermath because we have all the history of the aftermath, which is mixed results, usually not that great. Depends on the country. Good evening, London. Allow me first to apologize for this the emergency channel. I do, like many of you, appreciate the comforts of the everyday routine, the security of the familiar, the tranquility, repetition. Bloody hell. I enjoy them as much as any bloke. 
But in the spirit of commemoration, whereby those important events of the past, usually associated with someone's death or the end of some awful bloody struggle, are celebrated with a nice holiday, I thought we could mark this November the 5th, a day that is sadly no longer remembered, by taking some time out of our daily lives to sit down and have a little chat. There are, of course, those who do not want us to speak. We think, just let me I think. Expect even now, orders are being shouted into telephones, and men with guns will soon be on their way. It's Chancellor Sutler. Damn it! Why? Because while the truncheon may be used in lieu of conversation, words will always retain their power. Words offer the means to meaning, and for those who will listen, the enunciation of truth. And the truth is, there is something terribly wrong with this country, isn't there? Ecuador just had a big fight and rebellion against their government and they've successfully uh, ousted their government like f the last four times they've done it, I think. So mm -hmm. that's a populace that is very well versed and very grassroots and very organized um, to sort of get rid of corruption when they see it coming up, etc. I was just in a class about Italian history recently, and, it, and it's interesting to see Italy in the 1800s as sort of a microcosm for Europe because they were, you know, they're, they're sort of like, they're the same people, they speak the same language, but they were part of different kingdoms. And there were lots of, um, you know, rich families or, or the Papal States or the Two Sicilies, the, the Bourbons that were in charge of all these areas of Italy. And eventually, you know, these people had had enough of it and took advantage of little skirmishes here and there. And they had three wars for independence until eventually Italy was unified. And in this time when democracy was sort of not new, obviously, you know, the Greeks had a form of it and the idea has been around for a long time. But they literally uh, and, and they showed us the actual voter the voting percentages for all the different parties. And so they had to vote on whether they wanted a constitutional monarchy or whether they wanted a parliament, et cetera. And, and, and it, of course it went um, in the direction of uh, initially a, um, like a parliamentary monarchy essentially. So Italy still had a king, but they were unified. They, people voted, um, et cetera. Um, so those are, I, mean, I don't know, like that was, I guess a smoother one, even though it still started with three wars and the invasion of Southern Italy, et cetera. But um, it, it kind of depends on how far you look too, because this is the whole concept behind communism, right? And I don't bring this stuff to bring up politics. I, I, I bring it up to bring up the difference between idealistic conceptualism and then what actually ends up happening in reality, right? Because communism and Marx is always touting this idea of you know, the workers coming together and then annihilating government and like creating this new thing, which inevitably turns out to become a government. And we talk about states and governments all the time, but those states and governments are made of people just like us to a certain extent. Um, people with all their great qualities and all their flaws as well. And so inevitably people's character um, makes such a big difference in what kind of new paradigms are created um, in these countries and in, in these films and whatever it is. Um, and, you know, rarely we see good examples. Unfortunately, most of the time, um, the sort of uh, less pretty parts of our nature take over and, you know, authoritarians tend to sort of lay down the law, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we've seen it all. We see it in the present, we've seen it in the past and we see it in science fiction as well. Um, 
but yeah, I like, I like to see the thread and the connection um, between these stories that we read and, and watch and what we, again, some of it's based on history, some of it's predicting the future. Um, but it's all really fascinating, especially right now. Oftentimes in the movies that we watch, whether it's the matrix and, you know, you think about Neo and him, him being inside the matrix, but something was not right. Something just wasn't sitting right with him. And he kept asking larger questions and bigger questions. And then someone approached him saying, I know you're asking questions, start asking more. Um, it's the questions that are driving you. Um, and it's the moment of his rebirth. And also it cost him to come from out of the matrix and to, to, to live the life that they were living on the Nebuchadnezzar and to join everyone else. It wasn't, it wasn't what he expected to, to, to wake up from the sleep that he was in cost him a lot. The truth cost you. But I've noticed that even in, for instance, what's happening right now in, the, in this world in terms of the, the civil rights movement and the unrest started, well, it started, it didn't start with anything. I think the, the, the catalyst was George Floyd, of course, where it was just so horrific to see. And I, haven't seen that i've only seen part of it and it was playing on the show that i was watching it was a town hall with all these african-american people and they played part of it but i turned my head because i could i can't i I could hear it i didn't want to hear it but i it's like okay i'm gonna listen to it um but i can't watch that type of thing i don't watch those videos i don't watch videos of people fighting or people being horrible to each other but i also realized that that was the catalyst for whatever reason even the worst things that happened before that was the explosion um and it just you know caught the world on fire but if you and then you think about luke skywalker what really was his catalyst it was the death of his aunt and uncle and that um devastated him and eviscerated him and then it inspired him and that's where it begins these stories of uprisings don't start with oh here we are we're we're all fighting this you have to get people along in that ideology people have to also understand hey this isn't right this isn't this isn't um like the system that we're living in isn't fair to us and it shouldn't be and oftentimes many people will think that i started i worked for starbucks years ago and i started a this petition that twenty five thousand people eventually signed but it started off with me thinking something's wrong with this situation that we're that we're all working in right now this is fucked and we shouldn't Mm. be working in these conditions and why are we and so i started putting out little droplets of oh this is what i think in groups of people on social media and then it took it took hold and i still get emails today from people who still work in the company even though it's been two years since i've worked there but that's how the, the 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 partners or the employees of that company have taken hold of that company. Really. Um, they, the, the corporate structure is beholden to their lowest paid employees. It wasn't always like that. Not to say that it was me, but it was the movement of all of the people that took a hold of the corporate structure and the corporate structure bowed even recently, the corporate, you know, on a corporate level, they're like, Oh, you can't wear black lives matter um, shirts or whatever. And, uh, the the employees made a big deal and they posted it all on social media. The next day, Starbucks was like, okay, sure. I think about, these are a series of films that I actually enjoy, The Hunger Games. And I, they, when I remember watching those, I remember them feeling, I remember feeling like there's a lot of truth in this. And I really felt 
kinship to Katniss. Now, of course, it was for a young adults, and it, the story is somewhat watered down to some degree, but the bones of it were true. But it also reminded me of Children of Men, which also included, uh, or you know, you had this, uh, I think he was a reporter, wasn't he? Um, what's his name's character? Uh, Clive Owen's character? Clive Owen's character. Wasn't he, he when we are introduced to him, he's a yeah, reporter. He's a journalist. He's yeah. a journalist. Um, but he starts experiencing these things that wake him up to a larger understanding. And then he can't go back. And part of, again, one of the reasons why I'm talking about this is as we experience what we do in the real world, for me, what's right and what's true is not buried. It's not hard to see. It's not easy. You don't have to mitigate it. It's there. You, we know what's right. And uh, getting back to the original uh, comment that I made based off the, the post that I saw, which was, you know, you would never have fought for the rebels or the resistance, take down your Star Wars stuff. And I think part of it comes from, it's clear what's right and what's wrong right now. Why aren't you on the side of right? Why are you belaboring the destruction of, of buildings or property over the death of humanity? And for me, it's very clear, but it, it, my frustrations, even with people, mutual friends that we have, has been like, are you not seeing how clear cut this is? Um, but again, to move back into the space of movies, um, it was also not clear cut for a lot of those people either. They had to sort of be pushed into the movement that they were a part of. It never is that clear cut. The idealism and the ideas behind it can be, but in practice, A, I don't think any of it is, and B, that's exactly what politicians are good at doing is getting people to fight amongst themselves and muddy the waters and make things uh, at times more complex or divert your attention from what's really going on. Um, maybe we don't see enough of that in stories like the hunger games or even star Wars um, because maybe they don't get into that. And it's not, not to belittle either of them, but to say it's a little bit more, the goal is entertainment there, right? Um, you're not, sending a message trying to get people to rebel for example for example um but yeah and i and i also think that there's something innate in us that now and i've seen these people everybody's worked with them like they're usually there are people who have a natural aversion to authority and just have a problem with it they don't react well to their bosses telling them what to do uh if they join the military you can tell right away who those people are and then there's the other side of the spectrum who usually, if it's warranted and, you know, everything's functioning the way it should be, just don't have an inherent, inherent uh, hatred or um, they're not abrasive towards authority. But everyone knows what it's like to be bullied or to feel like you're being oppressed by your parents when you're younger, you know, while they may be looking out for your, for your better interests. We know that feeling, right, of feeling powerless and having some form of authority over us telling us, no, you can't do that or you have to do this or whatever the case may be. So you, in terms of um, fiction and science fiction, you don't have to understand the cause exactly. I mean, maybe you do, maybe it is well-written and, and they include that, but you don't necessarily have to know what the exact grievances are of the rebel Alliance versus the empire, right? Because emotionally you can 
put yourself in that place and understand those characters. And so you can follow that thread, whether it ends up being more watered down like the Hunger Games, maybe it's for a younger audience, or whether it becomes politically uh, more complex like 1984. Um, we all have just something innate in us ever since we started living in villages, you know, in societies. That's something that's ingrained in human beings is the balance of, of authority and understanding kind of when it's best for us to follow along and do what we're supposed to and when it's best for us to stand up and fight against what seems obviously wrong to us. I give you more. machines have gathered an army and as I speak that army is drawing nearer to our home <laughs> believe me when I say we have a difficult time ahead of us but if we are to be prepared for it we must first shed our fear of it I stand here before you now truthfully unafraid why because I believe something you do not? No. I stand here without fear because I remember. I remember that I am here not because of the path that lies before me, but because of the path that lies behind me. I remember that for 100 years we have fought these machines. I remember that for 100 years they have sent their armies to destroy us. And after a century of war, I remember that which matters most. We are still here! On the subject of movies which go beyond rebellion um, and look at kind of constructing a just order after a rebellion, um, it's not a sci-fi movie, but um, Lincoln, the movie Lincoln strikes me as being that yes. movie. Mm. Um, because obviously... It, it, it picks up at the end of the Civil War, and it's the story of how Lincoln gets the 13th Amendment past Congress. And it's just stunning. It's incredible. Um, and in terms of science fiction, the closest thing I can think of, and sadly no one's turned it into a movie yet, but I'm sure it will happen, is Octavia E. Butler's book, um, The Parable of the Sower. Um, it's an extraordinary book. Um, um, it's a dystopia. Um, which is obviously the immediate reason why I like it. Um, and it's about um, a young black woman who, um, and who, in the midst of a societal collapse, is trying to build something new. So it's both the story of the collapse of her society and the story of her trying to come up with something new. Um, so I think that's, I think, yeah, I think there are one or two people who are kind of trying to grapple with this and trying to do it dramatically. And I think it is much harder to do dramatically than a rebellion. But, you know, with somebody who's as, as great a writer as Octavia Butler, she can really do it. Um, the other thing that, you know, that the conversation has just reminded me of was um, in terms of how easy it is to see where the right and the wrong are, or sorry, where, what is right and what is wrong. It strikes me that Rogue One was the movie where 
in the Star Wars universe anyway, where they began to explore that um, through the character of Saw Gerrera. Mm. Um, and, I, and I loved him because, um, you know, because he's clearly, um, he's clearly the, the, the armed struggle guy. He's clearly the guy who says, you know, we need, to go, we, need, we need to go beyond passive resistance. We need to go beyond peaceful protests. We need to pick up, you know, weapons and we need to fight this. And there's also in Rogue One the sense that the Rebel Alliance are terrorists. Um, so, yeah, so I, I really and it's kind and that the kind of terrorist nature of the Rebel Alliance is kind of implied in previous episodes or, you know, or in previous movies. But it's, it's kind of out and proud, as it were, in Rogue One. Um, so, yeah, so I mean, I love Rogue One for all kinds of reasons. But one of the reasons was the politics of it and the way in which they kind of problematized what the Rebel Alliance were doing. Um, not least in a context where, you know, the, in, in, certainly in Britain, I don't know what it's like in America, but certainly in Britain, um, the worst thing you could possibly be is a terrorist sympathiser or somebody who gives sucker to terrorists or any of this kind of stuff. So, yeah, so I thought it was a very bold movie politically from that point of view. It's also really interesting. Oh, go ahead, Patrick. Well, it's just briefly, it's a really good point uh, that you make there, Robin. One thing, I, I love Rogue One as well, and that's one that we need to do a frame rate. Best on. Star Wars movie up. ever. It's, it's so awesome, um, yes. But, you know, we're introduced to Diego Luna's character by him murdering somebody. And, you know, of course, like, you know, Han shot first, but Han wasn't a rebel at that point, right? He was just, he was the bounty hunter, right? But we see, like, one of the, like, you know, protagonists of this movie, like a, a card-carrying member of this, you know, rebellion, straight up shoot somebody and lie to him while he's doing it. Um, and that's it's it really casts the entire rebellion in a much more I think honest way and, and yeah I totally agree Saul Guerrero is such a fascinating character and Forrest Whitaker has such a great body of work behind him that it's like not surprising that he made that character so indelible but you know I also love how we get to see him as an older man you know again and we see how, how the ravages that a life of rebellion has taken on him you know what it actually means to be a rebel for 50 years of your life and to be living in an outpost and to be actually mutilated by it physically but also mentally he's losing it you know um and yeah and i think that i think rogue one says a lot of really interesting things about rebellions uh and not all rosy things and i think that's really valuable because it's so easy to lionize rebels right it's so easy to to look at them as just heroes and they can't do any wrong but a lot of the time to to, to do great things you have to hurt people you have to hurt yourself right and that's that's a, that's a hard pill to swallow yeah and a, a mob is a mob too like you can't control after a certain point who joins your rebellion just because they feel like looting or burning down a store or um just because they have personal grievances that they're pissed off about and want to let out um or because their life isn't going the way they want to and this type of upheaval in society is an opportunity for people from an individual point of view to also remake their lives. Right. Um, who knows what Saul Guerrero, how he grew up and what he escaped when he joined the Alliance. Um, Garibaldi famously became one of these people who, uh, I don't think he was doing very well at home. You know, he went to South America and just randomly led rebellions wherever he could get his hands on troops and go fight against other people. And I'm not even trying to cast him in a good light. I'm just saying to me, he was more of an opportunist, but that happens as well. So it's lots of layers. And while we're not examining rogue one in this episode, but I'm sure we will soon. Um, yeah, I think we all really love that in fiction, right? You want to see complicated bad guys, just as much as you want to see complicated good guys, right? Someone who's just good all the time is super boring. Like you want to see someone who 
making a snap decision um, doesn't do the most compassionate thing every time or, you know, whatever the case may be. But if you hadn't mentioned him murdering someone at the beginning, I was going to Patrick, because that moment strikes me as well, where you're like, and Oh, it's look at this. Cold. It's, it's, it's a super cold of murder. Like, well, right. And not only that, but then um, the Alliance hasn't set up to um, assassinate, <laughs> you know, uh, essentially a good guy. And there he is with a sniper rifle um, trying to kill, uh, I'm forgetting his name right now. One of you nerds, help me out. Galen. Thank you. Galen, Galen. Yeah. So is that it? Yep. Yes. Yeah. Very nice. I can't thank talk you. about Guy Fawkes, but I can talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, you know, and th there's another uh, moral conundrum that that character uh, puts himself in and, and, sort of you know we know the story and he delays but you can see the uh, moral battle going on inside of him and and again we can't forget that there's a human element at every level to all of these things from from the individual person's life to the small grassroots group like jamie's talking about you know that starts small and gets together and becomes bigger and more powerful to a huge political movement and all those things have different dynamics and yeah i mean i i i, I reflect jamie's frustration in saying this is so obvious. How can you look at, um, say, the Rodney King beating, for example, which I was forced to rewatch a couple of times recently because I was watching documentaries on the L.A. riots, which, which are very good. They're on Netflix. Um, and, you know, it seems so cut and dry. You're like, I mean, it, it doesn't seem possible. It doesn't matter what that guy did, that you could treat a human that way. And we're just seeing this happen again um 30 years later, you know. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it seems very obvious the right thing to do. But between the right thing to do morally and the solution as a society, I think there's a wide gap. And that's where all the layers of complication fall in in reality, right? And you think about even, for instance, The Phantom Menace. You know, the prequels aren't, or the pre prequels aren't films that I really enjoy. But there's this one scene where uh, Padme is talking to Anakin. He's a little boy and he says that they're slaves and she's a little bit shocked by the revelation that they're slaves. Um, and if, of course, to her, it's this injustice that should not be happening in the world. And these conversations, way before you have an uprising, way before you even have a movement or catalyst, you're having people um, have conversations like, well, this is wrong. Um, and this is wrong over here too. Well, what do we do about it? And most of the time, and you know, history tells us this, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, not just in the African-American community, but many movements, uh, these little steps are taken. Well, let's sit here and not leave. Let's stand here and not move. Let's walk here and not stop. Those people were still tear gassed. Those people were still, were still killed. They were still bombed. Martin Luther King was, was assassinated. Um, he was this peaceful man that was assassinated and the man who was less peaceful Malcolm X was also assassinated so it was like well mm. we don't want you when you're quiet we certainly don't want you when you're loud um, mm. and it was it's been this slow move and even in a film like The Matrix it was also a series of conversations everyone was having um, Morpheus was talking to Neil about what was happening and what the world is and what it's become and where they came from. And it took Neo, I don't know how long, a long time to really believe it. Um, 
he knew something was wrong, but he didn't know what. Morpheus knew what was wrong. And, but it took, waking up takes a long time. Um, and I think there are people, um, I don't, I'm certainly, I would count myself as one of them who feel like, yes, I know what's right and what's wrong. I know, and I'm going to stand up for it right away. Um, but there are people who are like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't, this might cost me my job. This might cost me my neighborhood. This might cost me my family. Um, this might cost me a lot for me to stand up and, and um, do what's right. But I also know based off the films uh, that we've seen and that we are discussing and, and the world that we're living in now that these things come to this point because they're pushed to this point. And I wanted to read um, some of the lyrics of this song from Les Mis, actually, which Patrick, you know well, but I think it was really interesting in terms of the poor and how a lot of what we see, you know, Luke was a, you know, he was a farm boy. He, you know, there was a moisture farm. He was nothing. He was no one. But eventually what was happening in the world, in the universe, affected him on this country or in this planet at the ass end of space. This, you know, what was going on, the, the tyranny happening in the universe, wound up touching him as well and destroying his family. And, and he already didn't have much. And then it took that little that he did have, which was his aunt and his uncle and the home that he lived in and the home that he lived in. Um, but I also noticed with the stories that we're talking about, um, they always start with the poor. They always start with the destitute or, or, or the people of little means. And one movie that I thought about, which is kind of based in reality, is The Kingdom of Heaven. The protagonist played by Orlando Bloom, which his character's name is not coming to me right now. He was a blacksmith doing his own thing. You know, there was some political things happening in his town um, that he was really, you know, that involved his brother, I think, and um, that was really affecting him. But then the world outside started to affect him as well. And then that's what he got involved in. And I see that that um, happening in everything that we're discussing, where it starts small, it starts with the poor, and then people get to this point, like, we just, we can't do this anymore. We can't do this anymore. We have to do something. Um, and I'm just going to read these lyrics. Um, At the end of the day, you're another day older. And that's all you can, and that's all you can save for the life of the poor. It's a struggle. It's a war. And there's nothing that any, that anyone's giving one more day standing about what is it for one day less to be living at the end of the day you're another day colder and the shirt on your back doesn't keep off the chill and the righteous hurry past they don't hear the little ones crying and the plague is coming on fast ready to kill one day nearer to dying and it when i read that when i hear those lyrics it reminds me of a lot of what the african-american community have gone through um maybe not being more affected by poverty, being more affected by brutality, being more affected by the justice system. Um, but again, these struggles that they're experiencing have been, and this also echoes a little bit our, our topic of dystopia, it's been echoing throughout history and song and story and film over and over that if you can continue doing this to people, they're gonna explode. Um, and Again, these things are obvious, but even for me recently, like I said at the beginning, that one comment on that post in social media blew my mind. And it made me think of like, really, what do we, what, what do we stand for? What do we believe in? And what is the cost of uprising? 
um, what's in right now in this country, it's very dark. It's a very dark time where we're going through quite a bit. Um, but it, it was never, it was never going to go any other way than this, in my opinion. And it seems to be in films like, yeah, you know, like we've discussed, like the matrix or, you know, it, it was dirty. And Patrick, you said something earlier about, oh, what was it? Um, there it's, it's murky what you have to do. Maybe, you know, what, what um, the character in Rogue One, what's his name? Um, Saul Guerrero. No, no, the other one um, who killed the guy. I can only think of Diego Luna. I can't think of his character. Diego Luna, yeah. I can't remember his name. Cassian. <laughs> Cassian, 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 there we go. Yeah. Cassian Andor. Andor. Cassian yeah, Andor, yeah. yeah. It was murky. I mean, he was, it was morally wrong what he did or morally ambiguous what he did. Um, but you get to this point and we see this happening in movies where these good guys, quote unquote, have to do bad things. Um, whether it's killing someone or burning down a building or these things that seem like terrorist acts to get the attention of those in control. And uh, that's also something that's, you know, we want to be on the barricade. We want to have the flags. We want to be like the people, but to get to that point, that's, almost an end point. That's not the beginning. The beginning is dirty and um, murky and it doesn't look right. It looks wrong. You have to remember that all the people on the barricades singing One Day More were also shooting people with guns in the head and killing totally. them and sending their children to be killed yeah. <laughs> as well and robbing dead bodies of their possession. And you have to remember that, in, like, so, you know, we watch Star Wars movies almost continuously with our children because our entire family loves Star Wars. And so it's, it's a pretty, you know, great situation. But imagine like if the blasters that they used were actual bullets, what a different film that would be if you're, if the, cause there are, I mean, there are tens of thousands of just, even just stormtroopers who get killed in those movies. <laughs> like there are so many deaths in those films, but because it's just a and it's just light and, and they kind of go, Oh, you know, it becomes simple. But the reality is, is that like Luke Skywalker straight up fucking murders scores of people in those films. It might not be homicide because like, you know, they were engaging him in combat, but he still is killing us just so many people with absolutely no reservation and absolutely no of seeming no, no awareness of having done that. Right. All of these things that are, and also, you know, Luke Skywalker, when he was a moisture farmer, like he didn't want to go save the galaxy. He wanted to fly airplanes or he wanted to fly starships. Like, like, you know what I mean? Like it took, it took actual physical murder in his own life to get him to do something about it. And I think that's a separate point, but one that I want to come back to in a minute. But I do think that it's, it's, it's important. To, like when you see children of men, there is no question that there is enormous physical and mental costs to liberation, Right. When you see any any of these films that are are made like explicitly for adults and are dealing very deeply with these things in a real way, it, it, you you get a, a real sense that like the people who ultimately win in uprisings are often the people who are most willing to do terrible things in the name of a greater good, right? In some way. Um, so there's this kind of weird utilitarian aspect to that that I feel like we don't really engage on very much because it murkies this narrative that we really need, which is ultimately good guys defeating bad guys, right? And I think that there's this universal thing going on here where almost and almost like any story that we tell, right? There's a three-act structure to it usually, and there's also usually some sort of a struggle, and that struggle is usually good versus some form of evil or some protagonist versus an antagonist or a hero versus a foil. There's usually a VS in the middle of something, right? 
when that VS gets multiplied logarithmically in the form of a movement, it's extremely inspiring and exciting, right? So rebellions, I think, work incredibly well in a film context because it's mass heroism. At least it's cast as mass heroism, right? It's that good versus evil story writ large across a huge swath of people, and that's incredibly captivating. But you also, it's, it's important to remember that in that mass uprising, there are untold horrors going on. Um, and that those horror that that there's a mental calculus going on on the part of the uprisers where they're saying it's worth it, right? And that's not to say that that they're callous, and it's not to say that they don't get it. It's to say that they've been pushed to a point where killing people seems entirely justified in the pursuit of liberation, which is an extraordinary thing to get to. That's a crazy place to get to, and it takes extreme circumstances to get pushed there, like you're saying. And that's why you never start off the movie with you know the rich, powerful person deciding to do an uprising, right? Like that rich, powerful person decides to uprise after everything has been taken from them, right? That rich, powerful person decides to uprise after they fall in love with somebody who's in an uprising, right? And then, and then to win them over, they join it, and then they get, you know, indoctrinated, and they and they get it all of a sudden. Um, but you you can't have an uprising unless you have a struggle, and you can't really have a film unless there's some sort of a struggle going on in the first place, you know. And and I think that's at least a film in the traditional kind of non-experimental context. So I, I think that's in a movie in a movie way of thinking what um, is going on there. But going back for a second to what I was saying about Luke, you know, his hero's journey, I think, works incredibly well because part of why it's so universal is because he starts totally carte blanche, right? Like he starts without an agenda. He starts without even an identity. Like he doesn't even know actually who he is. He doesn't, he has no clue what, he, he doesn't even realize that, that Ben Kenobi which I still laugh about it. Like every time he's like, oh, he must be an old man. And he's like right down the street this whole time. And he has no clue that that's this incredible Jedi master, right? There's, <laughs> there's all of these like hilarious things because he's so carte blanche that he has no context for anything that happens to him. Context, you know, goes right into his life and tears it into shreds and gives him even more of a carte blanche state because he has nothing to lose. So he might as well join something, right? Um, and he goes from that, which is a totally passive place to actual active heroism over and over and over and over and over and over again. And that's why I think his journey is so extraordinary. But it's also why, and I, I don't mean to harp on that thing you, you were inspired by, Jamie, because I think, the, I, I, I think I'm misinterpreting it a little bit. But I do think that to say that somebody wouldn't fight for the rebellion is to sort of discount the potential in that person a little bit. You know, because a lot of people, I think, don't realize, they don't have like a vision for what reality is for other people in this world. A lot of people are very afraid, I think, of opening themselves up to the idea of how uncomfortable life is for other people who aren't like them. Um, and I think a lot of those people, when confronted with the reality of that, when those people become poor, or when those people become powerless, or when those people become best friends with somebody who has struggled and they can talk about it, they end up becoming incredible resistance fighters. You know, I mean, uh, there's like, like the, the people in Les Mis, were largely student. They were college students. They were university students, right? They were they were not people born into poverty. Many of the main characters in that story are actually wealthy. Like they're actually like educated young people who then through connections and through social movements become drawn into something and then they get it, right? It's very hard, I think, if you're not born into a context to understand the context for what it really is. And for me, as as a white person in America, and a white male and a white straight male in America. It's been a, a really long journey that I'm very much still actively engaged in to try to understand contexts other than my own in a way that 
I can understand them enough to feel like I'm doing them justice a little bit when I'm, you know, engaging on those conversations. And I still feel like I, I can't really feel like I still have a lot of learning to do. Um, but that, I don't know, I, 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 I hesitate to like upvote memes like that because I don't feel like, I don't know, I don't want to count anybody out. You know? Yeah, and I think for more context, when say you love Star Wars and you love the Rebellion and you have all that paraphernalia in your house or whatever, and then you're you're actually engaged in a real life rebellion happening or uprising happening in your own country, but you're criticizing them, and so I think the criticism comes from your life says this thing, but you're criticizing people who are uprising, who are trying to do what's right, who are trying to push for, so you wouldn't have fought for the rebels, um, and I don't think it discounts them so much. For me, it was more of a wake up because this is yeah right and so that so that way of couching it to me is way more productive it's yeah. saying this is actually like the freedom fighters in the rebellion are the freedom fighters in the street right now going out in the middle of covid and doing things that are extraordinary to try to affect social change like to draw to draw those parallels you know what i mean i just i, I don't know I'm, I'm so like you know me i'm having such a, a, a really genuinely hard time with social media lately to the point where i almost can't get on it at all Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is coming from this feeling of const- the constant otherization of every conversation we have. Like this, con- and Dan, I think you're really good about this. I, I, th- I think you do a very good job of, of, of and Jamie, not to say that you don't, but Dan, I think a lot of the time you help people like Jamie and I, who can be a little bit more kind of, you know, single-minded sometimes in these things, to consider being patient with other points of view. And that's something that I think that I need to work on more. Not to say, not to accept necessarily other points of view as being equally valid, in these sort of situations, but being patient enough to listen to what they're actually saying so that we can better, better understand where they're coming from and then help them join the rebellion, you know, or help them understand deeper social causes. Anyway, this is, the conversation is completely all over the place, which is fine. But I do think that in the context of Luke Skywalker, he is the prototypical, I mean, kind of literally the prototypical hero story because he starts completely blank slate, like Odysseus, right? He starts with nothing. And then he becomes everything through his uprising. And and then you have Paul Atreides, who did come from from uh, super rich. like a very very yeah super rich family, and they came to take over this this um, world and be in charge of the spice mining. And his his context for a living was like oh, I'm used to mansions and swimming pools or whatever. And then he meets the desolate poor, who then he understands, well, actually what's happening to our, this is our world and they've been raping it and they've been essentially enslaving us. And he has to come into that reality. Your time has come. A storm is coming. Our storm. And when it arrives, it will shake the universe. Emperor! We come for you! We come for you! We also have seen that even in lesser films like Avatar. Um, which, I was going to you know, bring that up. <laughs> well, but still, I mean, it's the, it's the same idea. And of course you have the whole white savior thing, which is yeah, not what we're discussing, but what's important about Avatar and is... And that's Paul Atreides too. Let's be clear about that. Paul Atreides is the fucking de facto white savior king who can come into a bunch of 
darker poor people and, yeah. and magically save yeah. them. Yeah, and then you have that the desert. Yeah, and you have that same dynamic happening in Elysium, where Matt Damon, the only white guy in a sea of Latino and ethnic people, <laughs> is the only person who can save them. Um, With his robotic backpack. Uh, but what is interesting in about Dune is the script is the script is flipped and he he comes into this new understanding and then he realizes he's stripped of everything he's stripped of his title he's stripped of his birthright he's stripped of the throne all of it i mean and then he is essentially taken in by the fremen and becomes one of them no Um, he doesn't become one of them he becomes their magical king yeah but he's one of them i mean he whatever it's yeah the quizette's heterac that's what he becomes but even that realization isn't until later but he it's he had a a lesson to learn and the lesson was was very different than luke skywalker's lesson whereas luke luke's catalyst was that um projection from Princess Leia saying we needed help. And yes, he was thought she was beautiful at that point, but also what really touched him was, I need help. And he's, there's someone out there that needs mm. his help. And that pushed mm. him into this place of, well, what can we do? How do we help? And I think that's, as we talk about these movies, the through line for me is love or justice, because I think that they, they work in the same, they are, in one and the same justice is an arm of love and love is an arm of justice and how do you love your neighbor better you treat them better number one how do you love your citizens better you treat them better you make sure that the system that they live in is just and uh, oddly enough with star wars for a long time the jedi and all of the um you know the senate they're the ones who started the um the clones and the stormtroopers it was all of that was all good quote unquote and it was this empire rising out of this this uh what what do they call that the republic the republic built that empire and then that empire turned on on everyone and uh decided that we were they're going to rule the universe but that's not how it started the um founding fathers of this country have written in like when things become unjust, the people need to take control, you know, mm. in terms of unjust men, unjust leaders and putting safeguards into place to make sure that that doesn't happen. And also reminding people that you are the ones in control, which is what I think the American uprising right now is about. It's about Americans not having anything to do, but change their country. But even in terms of the Matrix or Kingdom of Heaven or even smaller films or uh, smaller characters. I think of even Superman as a, certainly it's a Christ story, but it's also this idea of an uprising where he's going to come and do what's right, regardless of what governments think of him, regardless of what anyone thinks of him. He's So he represents this massive, he represented the, the, the voice of the poor. There's that scene in... Um, I think it was Batman versus Superman, which actually I love that film, except for the end. I think it's a, I think it's a profound movie. Um, you see him in another country, whether it's Guatemala. Shut up, Patrick. <laughs> um, you see him in Guatemala, and you see he rescues somebody from something, and all of these people's hands are on him. And what's so, for me, what's powerful, I've loved the character of Superman for a long time, but what's powerful about him is that he became the voice of the poor. And when the poor feel like they have a voice, you better be, you better watch out. Um, and they found that voice in Superman. And that's one of the reasons why his story has always resonated for me. When you have someone who 
you have that figure within the context of an uprising or maybe just by themselves speaking for everyone else. And you see it in that Jane Fonda film where she is, she's working, is it Jane Fonda where she's working in a factory and she starts standing up for the rights of the factory workers. Like Norma Jane, Norma, Norma Jean, I think, I can't remember. It's something like that. Or it might just be called Norma. And she realizes the, the working conditions in this factory and in this company are not enough. They're not treated well, and she's got to do something. And it's based off a true story. But then I also think of Dark Waters, which have, how many of you guys have seen that yet? Anyone? We just talked about that the other day. I know you said you want to watch it, Patrick, but Dark Waters yeah, is similar where you have this lawyer that's very rich, very comfortable lawyer, is presented with the story of someone who's a farmer, who's the lowest of the lowest of, of in terms of like what society thinks of people. They're a farmer, they're on, you know, they have cows and chickens and who gives a shit about you? And he got to this point where he realized he had to give a shit and he couldn't turn away from the truth that he was discovering. And so I think, and then what eventually this character played by- um, Mark oh, Ruffalo? My God, Mark Ruffalo, yeah. He also was the face of an uprising in that town against DuPont but it started so slow and it took so long and years and years and years and a lot of the people involved were like what are you even doing anymore and people were angry at him and people then thought he was doing the wrong thing and screwing with their lives and screwing with their livelihoods and what about my pension and what are you doing and you're making it tough for me and my family but then finally you know 15 16 years later justice was served um and I love the idea uh, in these films that we discuss. You know, of course, Dark Waters is also based off a true story. Then you have like Aaron Brockovich, similar idea there, where a little bit of truth is uncovered. And then it, it's like she opened a dam and she, you know, she found out that PG&E was essentially killing everybody in this town and they were fine with it. And it's interesting while we discuss this, Patrick, it reminds me a little bit of our discussion we had about Ash and the face of that lack of humanity and the poor in these stories, whether it's Les Mis or um, whether it's a, an ethnic group of people or, or the rebels or people living off in a distant planet in Star Wars or the Fremen on Arrakis, the poor are ground into the ground by this capitalistic society that doesn't give one shit um, until they say, this is too much. You have pushed me to the edge. You have pushed me to the edge, and we're going to put your spice production. We're going to stop it. We're going to stop all of it. And of course, when they stopped the spice production, what happened? All eyes turned to Arrakis. Uh, the emperor had to come there and find out what's going on, what's wrong. No one could control the situation from their from their mansion, from their spaceship somewhere. They had to go to the planet and deal with the situation. And that's the power that the people had. And uh, I, it brings me to this question that I want to ask each of you. And I think we've talked about it a little bit, but why do these stories inspire us so much? I mentioned before the nature of just being human and the nature of authority and you know how everyone can relate to feeling oppressed or uh, pressed down upon, same thing. Um, but I think aside from familiarity and relatability, um, something to go back to your earlier point, but I'll try and weave it into your new question, is that it's all super context dependent. So we all have a different price and a different cost, right? Um, not that everyone could be bought, that's not what I mean, but I mean that 
everyone has a line where they say, okay, if the government or these people rioting or whatever it is crosses this line, I'm either going to fight or I'm going to leave. I'm going to protect my family, whatever it is, right? Everyone has that line. Whether you've thought about it or not, you may find yourself in a place where all of a sudden you have to think about it real quick, but you're going to figure out what that line is for you. And I think that that line is very contextual depending on what you're dealing with. So Patrick talked about um, members of, of our society who are different than your straight white male, for example, and trying to sort of understand um, the context with, within which those minority groups live in and what they deal with every day. But, you know, it depends on how much you break things down, right? If you like look at the components of your phone, there's all these minerals and all this stuff that's being mined in other countries. We have no idea what kind of conditions those mine, those laborers and those mines are being worked under. So it would be easy for us to see a news story about a terrorist group in, um, you know, South America or in, or in Africa somewhere helping workers uh, burn down a mine and kill all the people that work in that company. Right. Depending on how that story is put out by the media, you could say, Oh my God, they, they like hung some people out front to put signs on them. They burned their bodies. Like, look how gruesome this was. Look how violent it was. Right. Um, and then you could learn the story maybe in that particular mind where you realize, Oh, these people were being worked like slaves and had tried many times to go through proper channels, blah, blah. And they, they got to their breaking point. They got to that point where they crossed the line and they said, no more, we're not going to be abused like this. Right. Um, brings me back to that quote that I can't remember the original source of it, but I think about it all the time that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Right. Um, and We'll say it was Abraham. It was either Abraham Lincoln or Gandhi. It was one of those two. It, it said everything. So. <laughs> um, and another good example of that is that uh, downtown, and I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but downtown Sarajevo, there's a statue of Gavrilo Princip, the uh, member of the Black Hand who killed Archduke Ferdinand and sparked World War One, and ostensibly both world wars because they're so closely related that you can't really have one without the other. And so that's a person who you could argue has a ton of indirect blood on his hands because of this one assassination and this one act that he took. But the people in Serbia from Sarajevo revere him as a hero because they're like, no, he was fighting against the oppression of the Austro-Hungarian empire who was over here telling us what to do and blah, blah, blah. And we fought back against them and we pushed them away. And that war ended up resulting in, um, you know, they were on the winning side of that war. So they did gain their independence out of that. Um, and, and don't forget, Gavrilo Princip was part of, a, of an uprising, you know? I mean, the, 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 like the Black Hand and all that stuff, like they, they, were, they were thought of as terrorists because they were committing terrorist acts, but they were doing so in the cause of liberation, which is the whole, right? Right. And again, the Serbian puppet government versus the Austro-Hungarian uh, government had very different opinions about the Black Hand and the, right. I can't remember, I looked it up recently, I can't remember the name of the sort of, serb officer that kind of started that group as part of a bigger movement but i mean look at what they eventually started for better or for worse we we're talking about dozens of millions of people dying you know yeah. um so these things have really big consequences but yeah context is super important what you're willing to justify and what you're willing to put up with in your society is very dependent what you're willing to lose depends a lot on how much you have and where your principles lie, 
you know, occasionally we'll see some very well-to-do rich people willing to put things on the line. Um, but what we see most often is poor people who don't have anything to lose are willing to lose their lives often um, in, in these situations. Um, one of the main ways they do it is in actual wars by the state, right? Because a lot of young and poor people end up fighting in wars for the military. That's another subject, but yeah, all of these things. And, and also, and this is not at all to attack your statement, Jamie, I wasn't even here when you said it about, you know, you wouldn't have, and that's a really interesting parallel about you wouldn't have been in the Alliance. No, no, um, I'll give you some context for that. Okay. Uh, I was saying that what prompted me to want to record this episode or if it ends up being two or split into two is the something that I saw on social media where it was this list someone posted saying take down your Star Wars your Rebel Alliance sticker you would not have fought with them and it was a reaction to you love all of these things but yet you're criticizing the people involved in this uprising who are trying to find who are trying to do what's right for their people and, and I thought well that's very interesting and I thought well let's discuss it. Oh, okay. Yeah, great. It is an interesting point. I also think that like a statement like that misses the fact that, you know, the battle or the uprising or the rebellion, again, everyone has a different price and cost. Everyone's family context is different. And also like, you don't have to go work in a hangar or fly a spaceship or fly a jet fighter to be a part of something, right? How many times do we not see in the films that um, rebels are being hidden, for example, by families, right? That family's not fighting in the Alliance They're not wearing rebel colors or overtly assassinating stormtroopers, for example, but they're helping hide fugitives, right? I mean, we saw that a lot in the history of uh, Nazi Germany and people who, you know, hundreds and hundreds of examples, Schindler probably being the most famous of people risking a lot, sometimes giving up everything they had to protect these people that were being persecuted, helping them hide, helping them flee the country, um, helping them blend in, you know, all kinds of things. Um, and some of those cases become really famous, obviously, because of the magnitude of their position and what they did. But I think even the smallest person with uh, the most to lose and nothing to gain can still do their own part. Even if it's just a matter of educating yourself about something you don't know that much about um, or having conversations with people, you know, like everyone has a different line on who you're willing to engage with and what you're willing to talk about. For me, I draw that line at where I think the conversation will be productive. If I think one of us can learn the point of view or the, of the other, then I think there's something productive there. If we're just going to talk around in circles, like, you know, there are certain, uh, certain members of my family that I, I won't name names or I won't discuss gay marriage with them anymore because I just know that we're on opposite sides of that argument. And it's like, okay, we're not doing anything productive anymore. But I think when it comes to these big societal um, issues that are based on history and that we're all living through and are, and are ever changing and evolving and, and, and in multiple countries, um, I think as, as much as we can possibly do it, it's important to listen to each other um, and try and understand each other's point of view, especially when we disagree. Um, and, and especially when we disagree, but we have sort of the same end in mind. You know, People who are um, on your side of the spectrum, let's say politically, and but you 
you know, you're, you're for tearing down all statues. They're against tearing down some statues or against, you know, issues like that. I think those are really important things to actually talk about and hash out because they, they make you think and they make you process a lot of this stuff and they make you learn more about history. So I think these conversations are really important. In terms of what I find inspiring about the, um, the kind of rebellion narratives, um, I guess I want to identify two things. And the first is humanity and the second is imagination. Um, so I think the thing about all of the rebellions in in books on, in books and films like Dune or in Star Wars or my own personal favourite Doctor Who Dalek Invasion Earth um, is that the rebels are in some sense more humane and they are fighting for a more human life for the people who come after them and the people who they're fighting against are in some sense the enemy of humanity. Um, so Paul Atreides, for example, he his version of life, um, the way he lives and the values that he represents are much more humane um, than the values of the Baron Harkonnen or the, the values of the Empire. And the same would be true of the Fremen. The Fremen, you know, they 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 live a recognizably human life, whereas the the people working for the Harkonnens in you know whatever city it is in Arakeen or whatever, they they're living a, a, a debased life, um, <laughs> clearly, <laughs> as it were. Um, and I think the second thing I want to pull out of this is imagination. And I think, um, so in Britain at the moment, we are having lots of conversations about statues and when it's right to pull a statue down and when it's right to let a statue stand, um, particularly around the statue of Rhodes, um, the arch imperialist whose statue is on the front of one of the colleges in Oxford. Um, and yeah, there's lots of kind of, lots of white people want to engage in very, um, kind of pseudo-intellectual discussions about it. And my feeling is that there's also, th my feeling is that's the wrong way to do politics. Pseudo-intellectual discussions is the wrong way to do politics. Imagination is often the key to a better politics. And all of these things, you know, whether it's David Lynch's flawed Dune or whether it's the superb Rogue One or Star Wars Episode Four or whatever it is we're talking about, these appeal to our imagination and through that, they make us want to be better people. You know, I want to be on Luke's side. I don't want to be on Vader's side. I want to be on Paul Atreides' side. I don't want to be on Baron Carhonen's, uh, you know, Harkonnen's um, side. On that note, okay, as, I've, as I said before the show started, I'm a historian of the British Black Power movement. Um, and there's a small black power group in London in 1968 called the Black Eagles. Okay, um, they're led by a guy called Michael X, who met Malcolm X when M Malcolm X came over to the UK, and then he, you know, then he became identified as, as Michael X. Um, yeah. And he's it's also led by a guy called Darkest Hal. Um, shortly after they are founded and they're doing their stuff, they're policing the police in a, in an area of London called Notting Hill. They're written off by this author called V.S. Naipaul. V.S. Naipaul is a Trinidadian author. He, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And he writes them off as, quote, unquote, a fantasy outfit. Okay, that's what he describes them as. Um, and in one sense, Naipaul is correct. They are a fantasy outfit. In one sense, all they're doing is fantasizing. They're playing at being heroes. But in another sense, what they do is they lay the foundation for the biggest defeat of the British police that had ever been, you know, witnessed um, in this period these people who were part of this quote-unquote fantasy outfit, they take on the police, they win, and they prove, they, they have the first judicial acknowledgement in British history that there is evidence of racial hatred inside the British police. Okay, so what starts as fantasy, 
you know, become something real and become something that changes history. Um, so yeah, so hence my point about imagination. I just want to make two other points, and they're about things that we've been talking about earlier. They're about motives and they're about violence. So we've been talking about Luke and why he joins the rebellion. And you know, Patrick, you rightly pointed out Luke. He joins the rebellion because he wants to fly. You know, what's fly a cool spaceship? Um, and Jamie, you pointed out he joins the rebellion because he, you know. He sees Leah and, you know, he falls in love with Leah. And we discover how problematic that is in later episodes. But in episode four, it's all cool. Okay. Um, And my feeling is that motives are always the wrong place to look. I mean, who cares why people do good things? The fact is they do good things. And that's the thing that's important. Um, There's a point that Marx makes, Karl Marx makes, about motivation and about interests. And the thing that Marx says is, the proletariat, the working class, they're going to make a revolution which is going to transform the world for the better. And they're going to do it out of self-interest. Okay, It just so happens that their self-interest completely coincides with the interests of humanity. Okay, So it's okay to do things for selfish reasons, you know, if those selfish reasons also coincide with, human- with, the, with the good of humanity. And I think lots of times, certainly in British political debate, what we're doing is we're questioning the motives of people. Why are they doing this? What's behind it? You know, are they really terrorist sympathisers? And I think that's completely crazy because, first of all, we can't see what's in people's hearts. We can't see that. We'll never know what motives are. It reminds me of 2008, the big discussion in America over whether Hillary Clinton's tears were real. Okay, whether they were authentic tears. And it's just such a pointless debate to have because you're never going to know, you know, and who cares, you know, who cares? Um, there, there are bigger issues at stake in 2008. There are bigger issues at stake now. So, yes, yeah, so I think motives is the wrong way to go. You know, we should focus on what are the actions people taking? Are those actions and do those actions have good consequences? I don't think we should worry about motives. Uh, my final thought is about violence. And there's been a lot of discussion about the problematic nature of violence here. And, you know, Luke killing people out of hand. Um, Again, one of the things that I think we can really learn from black radicalism is the importance of self-defense and how self-defense is, you know, um, dark as how, um, British black radical, he had a saying, self-defense is no offense, okay? If you're defending yourself, that's entirely legitimate, you know, you should pay no legal price for that. And of course, that's, you know, that was Malcolm X's point as well, you know, buy a gun, it's legit, you got a perfect right in in American law. And on that note, one of the things studying the American black power movement that just completely horrified me, I thought if there's one thing I know about the Americans, they love their guns, okay? But of course, the moment that the Black Panthers seize seize weapons and take them onto the streets of um, California, the governor of California, um, Ronald Reagan, passes all of these laws to take away the right to bear arms. For goodness sake, you know, it's the biggest assault on Second Amendment rights happens when black people start to arm themselves in California which is, I think, it's interesting reflection on, you know, on the way politics worked in America in 1968 or whatever. Um, so, yeah, so, yeah, I think violence is a really interesting one um, because, you know, we are very squeamish about violence, but, you know, violence which is in the name of humanity and violence which is self-defence, either self-defence of me as an individual or self-defence of my community, I think all of that is kind of legit and we shouldn't be particularly hung up on that. Anyway, those are my thoughts. What are amazing thoughts, as always, Robin. Um, I, I should be clear: I'm not impugning Luke or any of the rebellion for using violence. Oh right? no, it, no, it's more. No. It's what I'm. What I'm thinking more is that we never see the cost of that violence on them personally, right? Because even killing somebody in self-defense is something that like leaves a mm. mark, you know. Mm. Um, just on somebody's like psyche, let alone doing it over and over and over again for years and years and years and years and years. And I, I feel like um, it's it's just it's interesting that like in in our in our rush to sort of escape with our entertainment. 
we focus so much on the on the on like the more clearly heroic aspects of it or the aspects of it that seem like more sort of um aspirational and the, and the actual reality of what it takes to rebel or to uprise is something that gets kind of completely not included in the in the conversation in the vast majority of popular films which i think is so interesting but those those are amazing points i want to bring up one thing briefly before i forget um dan you had mentioned earlier uh you wanted to weave in a point and it reminded me of a movie from 1927 called die vapor uh which is the weavers in german and it's a it's a silent film from like the expressionist silent era that was about the the silesian weaver uprising at the beginning of the industrial revolution they were these weavers in what is now basically poland who uh, were who felt like they were getting forced out of their line of work because you know their these industrial machines were taking over all of their traditional practices and their hand weaving, and they had enough actual like violent intense uprising that led to democratic change, which was actually really productive in a lot of ways in the long run. But this movie from Germany in 1927 uh, was like a very early silent uprising film that um, luckily has like survived and, and is part of sort of canon now. Um, but this 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 trope has been there for forever, and I think it's it's for really, really good reasons, you know. I mean, that's weird too. I have to check that out because you and I talked about Metropolis from Germany from the same exact year about a work, yeah. about a worker uprising. Yeah, so there was yeah. a lot of that going on. Yeah, Metropolis is about an it's exactly about an uprising, right? Yeah, machines eating the workers. That whole <laughs> yeah. metaphor, you know, <laughs> pretty clear, right? The the Baron Harkonnen the machines basically at the time, right? What I think is interesting if you see it in films or shows like there's uh, Amazon has a show called Jack Ryan, and it's not that good of a show. It's well made for sure, but the whole which means season, Jamie watched the whole thing three times. <laughs> <laughs> the, the first season, though, I thought the first season really wasn't about Jack Ryan, even though he saw him here and there. But what it did, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it humanizes oftentimes that um, Muslim terrorist on a plane or the the bomber in a different country. It tells the story of how they became radicalized, how their towns were bombed and destroyed over and over by these these outside forces where the 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 you have this framework or this framing of these people and who they are and isis and you know all of these groups that are terrible they're they hate america and blah 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 and blah 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 blah. but it's only been recently that their stories have actually been told of their radicalization why they've become who they are um and what's interesting about that is the similarity in the story of Luke, how Luke is radicalized, how his town is bombed, or his parents are bombed, his, his aunt and his uncle. And you see that over and over and over in these stories, where these these figures who are who we look to as, as rebels, as like, yes, we're on their side, when in fact the people who we're told who are, and I'm not saying all of them, and oh, everyone's fine, and oh, one, you know, I'm not trying to make that kind of generalization, because there are, are, are bad players out there, there are people who want to wish harm, of course, you know, whether that's in America or Iraq or Iran or wherever. So I just want to at least make that point. But I also think that we often overlook the story, what the story is behind, what Cassian Andor's story was, why he was in the fight with the rebels, what cost um, he experienced, what the consequences of that fight was for him, what it took for him, even Jin Erso, um, 
why she ended up in that fight, why she ended up in the end saying, well, well, you know, you're rebels, aren't you? Like she lost her father. She lost her mother. What more did she have to lose? But um, she was also radicalized. And for a while, she was just living for herself. She was just trying to eat and live another day. And that's often the struggle until someone or something or an, an event or a moment pushes you on and said, this isn't just about you anymore, um, which is what I think America is going through right now, where, you know, if you look out in the streets at the protests, there's white and black faces and brown faces and everyone. And often most of them are students or very young people. And they're in the streets day in and day out. And it's been going on for like a month, these protests, day in and day out into thousands and thousands of people. But I, I also think it's interesting in these films, you don't see like one of the reasons why I thought Kylo Ren was interesting was I, you knew where he came from. I, I really, he, for a while, he was my favorite villain in star Wars mythology. I thought he was amazing until the end, until the last movie. Um, but you, you understood the pain of where he came from and why he was in, why his rage was affecting so many people. It made sense. doesn't mean it was right, but it made sense. It humanized him to say, yes, you, you suffered. I mean, he might, he didn't lose his parents per se, but something was going on inside him that was, that was pushing him to the dark. Um, and I always think it's important in film and stories to know, like bad guys have always been more interesting to me in, in a lot of films, not that I've been rooting for him, but oftentimes with the bad guy, they show you why he's the bad guy, where they don't tell you why he's a good guy. He's just a good guy. And that's boring too. You know, you said that earlier, Patrick, it's just, it's boring. We need some complexity there. Um, but I think it's, it is important in these stories to know where people come from, to know what so-and-so stormtrooper's life was, why he became a stormtrooper, to know, um, and, like with the matrix is a little bit different because they're computer programs. So they represent, I don't know what they represent. They just represent computer programs. So it's a little less interesting there. What is interesting about the matrix is the human fight to remain human, to, to retain their humanity and their actual physical bodies, which I, I thought was very engrossing, but long, long spiel to say that I really do think in these discussions, as we continue to, um, investigate uprisings and what's going on in the world to understand the story of someone you might really disagree with to understand really where they're coming from which is why in my own life it's been frustrating to me when i see people go on and on about property and like in terms of like statues like personally my opinion is let's tear let's tear down the the system and then let's worry about the statues but I, that's, I'm not out there doing that. I, you know, they're, they're doing what they ever can do. I just, the statues are a symbol of, are symbol of a, a system. Let's actually go after the system first, but it's whatever. Oftentimes you can't predict these things. You can't control them. Revolutions and uprisings, they're, they're a force and to be reckoned with, and they're steamrolling over everything. And that pendulum is swinging. You know. Right, and that's see if we bring up statues too many times, then we got to talk about it. But that's why it's a problem when people are tearing down statues of Washington and more atrociously Ulysses S. Grant, who not only didn't own slaves but freaking led the Union against the Confederacy because it shows people's ignorance and their lack of oh, knowledge sure. of history, and for that sure. is for sure stupid. And well, like I said, best interest. Uh, yeah, and I think definitely when we're not in the trenches because i haven't been out there protesting i you know uh, it's called like, lack of leadership 
That's oh, for sure, for sure. But I, 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 I hesitate to criticize because I, I we're past that. Like, uh, there's always a better way that you can do things for sure. But uh, the larger point for me was to remember or to as we meet this moment that we're at and as we explore that moment in films um which gets me to the last question um why are these stories being told over and over why do we, why is it just because we're living them or but it's these stories are being told to us again and again and again of uprising of the little man coming against either it's the the corporation or the regime or the governments at the at that time or whatever um or you know they're they're little mom and pop factor that's doing them wrong or whatever i don't really know um but why do we tell these stories over and over what what are we just retelling so we can live better so we can so we can do this better later on so we can know not be ignorant as what dan was saying so we can know what's appropriate and what isn't so we're not just going crazy because in movements like these and certainly even in you know um in rogue one there are things that happened in Rogue One that shouldn't be. Cassian Andor should not have killed that man. That was that that went too far. They shouldn't. Have, there's many things they probably should not have done, but they did it. And mm. I'm fascinated by how these stories. Why we tell these stories again and again and again and mm. again. In terms of why we tell the stories, um, the greatest Caribbean intellectual of the 20th century, um, a guy called C.L.R. James. What C.L.R. James argues is that the reason we have movies where the hero is always the person who fights against the system is because we are living in a world where the system is fundamentally against us. The system is fundamentally inhuman. And what the movies are doing is they are kind of giving us the wish fulfillment. Um, they're, they're giving us um, a fictional version of the thing that we want, which we can't have in reality, I guess. And this is... I, and. I want to go back to Jin Ursa and I want to go back to the consequences of violence and why that's not shown in films and whatnot. And I completely agree with you, Patrick. Yeah, we never see the consequence of violence on Luke Skywalker. We never see it on Han Solo. We never see that. Um, and, you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, something that we, we kind of need to grapple with. But there's another consequence that we rarely see, and that's the consequence of inaction. Okay, so violence has consequences on the human psyche, inaction has the consequences on the human psyche. And I think what we see in Jin Ursa is we see the consequences of somebody who put up with imprisonment and put up with, you know, being an outlaw and didn't rebel. And what's happened to her, you know, she's shut down emotionally. Um, she's kind of, the fight has been knocked out of, of her. She's just looking after number one and then she's liberated and then she joins the rebellion and then, you know, that humanizes her again. So I think, yeah, I think both of those things have consequences for the human psyche. And I think it would be great to see more films which explore both the consequences of violence and the consequences of inaction. And going back to Jamie's question, one of the reasons that we need films about rebellion is because our lives are so conformist. You know, we need it because it's, you know, it's, it's the, yeah, what is it? It's, it's the fictional realisation of the rebellion that we are not fighting. Can you tell everyone what you're seeing right now? Cadmus, what do you want to say? I want the rebels to know that I'm alive. That I'm in District 8, where the Capitol just bombed a hospital. 
filled with unarmed men, women, and children. And there will be no survivors. If you think for one second that the Capitol will ever treat us fairly, you are lying to yourself. Because we know who they are and what they do. This is what they do, and we must fight back. I have a message for President Snow. You can torture us and bomb us and burn our districts to the ground. But do you see that? Fire is catching. And if we burn, you burn with us. I love that. Who's the, who's the Caribbean academic again? C.L.R. James, Cyril James, Lionel yeah. Robert James. Yeah. It's a great name too. Uh, I, I think that's such an amazing point about the, the, the fiction that we can actually escape these systems and how that's kind of the allure of these film uprisings. Because like in, in, in my line of work in the nonprofit world, like systems of change are like, that's like all we talk about is, is like how, how, you, how do you change the structure of systems that are like very clearly put in place to keep people at bay. And to, you know, like a great, like this is like a very simple example of it. There are these communities called the Rivereño communities in South America. Who, of people who have been there for you know dozens and dozens of generations, living along the Am the Amazon and its tributaries, you know, three hundred miles away from any like major city, right? Um, they don't have land deeds. They just this it's all generational hereditary land that has been passed on forever. And they have a functioning local economy, and it's you know they don't need to be bothered with like they're they're just people going about their lives. But because there are you know state governments like in in Brazil and you know that just at the side all of a sudden. Uh, that like they do own the land and so they just go and they just they don't even declare eminent domain they just say like you don't have a deed to this land so it's ours so like you have to pay us taxes on it and also this is now your government um and these people have no legal recourse because they don't even speak the language that the, the the central government speaks so like how are they even going to like mobilize any kind of a movement to fight that so all of a sudden they just they just don't have land anymore like they just don't have land they just can't and then they get pushed down the river into the cities that they, you know, didn't even know were down there because they had no reason to be doing business there in the first place. And then, like, what do they have? They have no savings. They have no infrastructure. They don't speak the language. They don't have any any way of knowing how the society works. And that is just like, and that and that's just like a very minor, very specific example of how these things function. And this happens all over the world constantly, every single day, all the time. Um, and it happens with wealth. It happens with systems of food. It happens with inequalities. It happens with all this different shit. And it's the intentionality of it that, to me, is the most shocking and, and outrageous thing. It's, it's, it's how intentional it is. I don't want to necessarily quote Run the, Run the Jewels too many times in this episode, but one of the great hooks on that album, RTJ4, is look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar, right? We're paying money with fucking slave masters on it every single day of our lives. It's crazy. And, and we don't even stop and think, and think about how symbolic that is, right? That we're paying with money with portraits of people who enslaved people without regret during their lifetimes and made fortunes off of it, you know? And then we're paying with the fucking, with the leftover remnants of those fortunes that were established 250, 300 years ago. Anyway, um, I, I, that really resonated with me, what you said, Robin. And something else that you said earlier that I don't want to forget um, when you were talking about Marx and about, you know, motive and about I think it's important to remember that you can still be part of transformative social change if you're not necessarily a heroic person whose life has been broken, right? It's really okay if you just decide one day to listen and to act 
accordingly to what you're hearing. You know, that is, that is a small moment of heroism that every single one of us is capable of. And like, and, and you don't have to be broken to be a part of an uprising and you don't have to give everything away to be part of an uprising. There are plenty of people in Star Wars we never see in the Rebel Alliance or in the Resistance who are bureaucrats or who are the people who are just logistics officers. There, there are so many people out there who are fabricating space vessels for you know these resistance fighters, right? And, and we don't hear their stories because they're not sexy and they're not exciting, but those people didn't necessarily give up everything that they ever owned to join the resistance. Those people did something transformative to, to build and to propel forward those who were willing to and able to give the ultimate sacrifice in the cause of freedom, right? So I think, I, I, guess, I guess, I don't know why I'm harping on this tonight. Maybe it's because I have a guilt complex or something, but I, I feel like, I probably do. I am not somebody who is going to give everything up to fight for freedom in my lifetime because, because I feel personally, and this is my personal decision, which is super selfish and solipsistic, and I'm not going to apologize for it because it's real. I don't want to give away everything that I have to fight for freedom at this point in my life. Um, I don't want to endanger my kids. I don't want to lose my house. I don't want to you know, lose my career. I, I, I don't, but I do want to work in small and transformative and specific ways constantly in that direction. But that means that I will have to be resigned at the be in the best case scenario to being one of those bureaucrats or being one of those fabricators in the factories or being one of those people we never actually see the stories of who are contributing to substantial change on a galactic level in Star Wars, right? But aren't the ones fighting the X-Wings, right? To, and, and, that, and that's something that I feel like is okay too. Even if it doesn't make as good of a movie, it's okay to be a positive force for good in this world and to see some elements of yourself reflected in these uprisings, even if you're not necessarily as brave or as audacious as these people are. I think, and I, and I, I hope that, and that's why I bristled at the comment, Jamie, even though, even though I did misinterpret it, and I'm like owning that right now, I, I, I was hearing it in a defensive way because I wasn't thinking about the context of it. I do hear people saying things like that a lot. And, and, I, and I feel like uh, it's important to remember that there's more to it than just the sexiest uprisings where things are so extreme and extraordinary and beautiful to watch and heartbreaking, you know? There's a lot of people who work in, those, in the backgrounds of those moments. And uprisings are not only about the loudest noises in the situation. Sometimes it's about the quiet moments of grace too, you know? Absolutely. And I think what's so important about that statement for me, I also read it as, think about what you believe. What do you really believe? Yeah. And have this conversation, this internal dialogue, which is so important. And that's what even made me think like, whoa, like, what do I believe? What do I fight for? What is the cause of right? Let's really talk about what the cause of right is. And it's also going to be misinterpreted like dan was saying earlier sometimes it'll it will some of the consequences to that or the casualties of that will be things that don't even aren't even related to it unfortunately but that's just how history happens unfortunately we have to have to go back and amend it or whatever um but i i loved that comment for me was almost it was a was a moment for me to stop and think well what part am i playing what do i really believe and hopefully the right people also but at the same time we're also living in, a, in, a, in an age where there's a lot of incendiary language out there a lot of language people are throwing out there on the in the cause of right that shut down conversations with other people they're so angry they're so loud they're so mad which i understand oh my god do i understand it but you're not going to change you have to everyone has to come to the table and you can't everyone can't come to the table if you're screaming at them 
that everything if, that they're doing is wrong. And if your purity test is up here and no one can pass it, you're going to have no one in your uprising. You yeah. know what I mean? It, when, yeah. when everyone's criticizing each other for not doing enough or not rebelling the right way or not, you know, there's some little guy that's part of the empire that works on the Death Star who's like, I'm not going to tighten this nut all the way. <laughs> 80%. You know what I mean? Like, but like he's fighting the good fight too. You know, like everyone plays their part. I saw it said recently, probably in a meme, but somebody had to actually write it. Right. And they said, um, you know, if you feel like you can only talk about what's going on right now or post it on social media once a week, or maybe you're not on social media, you can only talk about it with your family or your friends so much and then it becomes overwhelming you don't you know whatever the case may be or whether you're out there you know protesting every day the fight is the same and this is like a multi-lane highway so it's okay if you're only comfortable staying in your lane as long as we're all moving forward that's a good thing and you're helping i think and i think that's a really important message because we i think when you're fighting for a cause you don't want to lose allies due to a purity test or due to them not doing it exactly the way you want to. I think everyone can play their small part. Robin, I just want to thank you again so much. And I'm not, I'm not necessarily wrapping this right now, but I can see the sun coming up behind you and I'm feeling <gasps> super guilty that it's that late where <laughs> yeah. you are recording this. But it's also that's, midsummer for you, isn't it? So Yeah, no, that, that's bad news because I'm actually a vampire. The reason I do this is late at night. <laughs> so it's, you know, if I'm caught in that, I'm just going to evaporate. It'll be a disaster. <laughs> so thank you for the warning. Yeah, Gosh, yeah. better get back to my coffin. <laughs> I, but I do think it's probably right a, a good place to wrap things up. I mean, we've been on this for almost two hours. Um, I think it, it is a fascinating conversation. I do love stories of resistance and rebellions for me, even as a young person. I, and also because I was raised by hippies where people were protesting and always, you know, even though other things were happening, they were always fighting for what they believed was the cause of right. So stories of rebellions have always been like, yes, we can do this. And it's been for me, this, natural extension of who I am. Like, yeah, let's stand up for what's right, right? Isn't that what we do? That's what we do. Not everyone thinks that way. And to your point, Patrick, like, hey, I have a family. I have children to raise. There are there are decisions that I can make. There's ways that I can participate in where I can be a part of that and not be out in the street and in New York City or wherever um, because that's not your role and everyone does have a different role. Even for me, I haven't been out protesting. And part of that reason is because I live in a house full of uh, immuno uh, compromised people and I, I just can't do it um, I would love to I really would love to and I probably depending on when things happen I might eventually go out and be a part of one protest depending on what it is but I think we all have a role to play um, but I also think it's important to take time to dissect and discuss these stories that have always inspired us and why they've inspired us and have them keep on inspiring us. Neo is, is inspiring for a reason. Uh, people like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. are inspiring for a reason. Their stories are told over and over for a reason. Paul Atreides, Moadib, is inspiring. I mean, I, I love his story. It just, it, the idea that you can rise up and that you can become better than your the situation that you've come from or the circumstances that you've come from that to me gets me up in the morning you know so i really appreciate everyone um participating in this these discussions will iterate themselves again and again in other ways as we talk about blade runner or alien um but again thank you so much everybody 
Ellen Ripley did not go alone. She had the help of crewmates and marines and prisoners. Ripley knew that defeating the enemy meant working together. Mordor was not defeated by Frodo alone. The people of Middle-earth came together as one, rising above their squabbles. Luke Skywalker did not destroy the Death Star by himself. He had the entire rebellion working together to defeat it. What good are the stories we read or movies we watch if we cannot understand that unity has always defeated the enemy?